today on CityCast Salt Lake. Utah's tech sector is booming, and it's bringing conversations about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, right to Salt Lake's doorstep. We've all heard the rumors that tech is riddled with misogyny, but just how bad is it? Well, my guest today, Dr. Laura Silverman, says it's really bad, y'all. She moved to Salt Lake to work for the local biotech firm Discgenics, and just two weeks ago, she and the company's former CFO filed a lawsuit taking Discgenics to federal court over discrimination. It's Monday, June 13th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Lara, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me today. You, um, in an article that I read in the Daily Beast, I think it was, you described your experience working for a local biotech firm as a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and, and where you're at with that experience right now. Yeah. So 10 years ago, I moved to Salt Lake City to join a small fledgling startup. Um, I was just finishing my PhD in orthopedic bioengineering And I was connected with someone who was doing what I did in my PhD in the real world. And it was so exciting to have the potential to actually use all of my skills for my PhD um, and maybe even impact, you know, a pretty major medical issue, which is low back pain. Um, I joined the company and it was just me and a few other people. um, And we went on this journey where we um, figured out the science and we ran animal studies and we talked to the FDA We ended up running two clinical studies in the U.S. and abroad for this novel stem cell therapy for low back pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, scientifically, it was a really, really interesting journey. We published a lot of papers. I gave a lot of talks. But unfortunately, there was a lot of things happening in the background that (laughs) took away from that experience. And what happened was um, the first few years were okay, but over time, um, there started to be some pretty uncomfortable behavior, um, specifically towards women, towards pregnant women, towards um, LGBTQ people. And um, about a year and a half ago, we had a steady exit of women. We had six women women leave in a row. And we had recently brought in a new CFO from Medtronic who also took on some HR duties And we decided that um, we needed to say something to try and save this business that we had built from the ground up. You know, this was my life's work, 10 years of science. Um, Unfortunately, that conversation did not go well because the people who I think were cultivating this really unhealthy um, illegal culture were the people in charge. So... um, it it did not go well. <laughs> yeah, wait, you so the you said the CFO took on some HR duties? Yeah, yeah. So uh the company that in and of itself feels yes. sort of strange to me. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, the the board was made of all older white men and the executive team was all older white men and they decided to bring in a CFO who was also an older white man. So we were all very skeptical. Um, But as it turns out, he had a lot of experience with HR and pretty quickly realized there were some issues. And he naturally started fitting into that role, and they actually formally assigned him those duties. Um, He did his job and found out what was going on. A lot of uh, employees confided in him that they were made to feel uncomfortable with um, all the sex jokes and the demeaning comments towards women. And um, there was a lot of hostile behavior, a lot of violent behavior 
But unfortunately, when he elevated those issues to the board, he was promptly removed from those duties Mm. (laughs) and then fired within a week. Um, My job was similarly stripped and gutted. I asked for years to be promoted to chief science officer because that's the role I had. I was never really given a reason um, other than I don't think I fit in. I wasn't one of the C-level boys, as they called themselves. Um, But basically, as soon as I raised my hand and said, I think we have a problem, we're losing all these women, um, my job was gutted as well. So it was a really difficult stretch of my life. um, But we did decide after being pushed out to utilize the legal system and and try to bring to light some of this behavior. Mostly because, you know, as I I did mention to colleagues, close friends, my experience, I was really horrified at the number of women who also had these experiences. And I realized that maybe my experience is not as unique, unfortunately, as I thought it might be. Yeah. I mean, the picture you're painting also just feels like sort of, I mean, a story that we've heard quite a bit of when it comes to the tech field or the mm-hmm. STEM field, which mm-hmm. is that it's a, you know, it's a, a broy culture. That's my word, not yours, but yeah. it's a broy culture. Um, and it is not always very inclusive. And it's interesting because there's this like, of course, I feel like everyone on earth has heard the expression women in STEM. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a hashtag at this point. It's like, we need to get more women in STEM. We need to get more people of color in STEM. And it's been years. I mean, I remember, I remember being in middle school and hearing about like, oh, there are STEM opportunities, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess the question that I think we're left with right now is, is STEM ready for women? Because marching people into a space that's not, that doesn't set them up for success isn't fair. And it's also not equity or diversity or inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's my question for you. Like, is STEM ready for women? I think that the generation above me got women a seat at the table. You know, Mm -hmm. there are more women in labs, in industry, doing the work. Um, I would say that we're not in leadership positions, um, but there are more women around. My generation's challenge is to figure out how to actually make it work. How do we actually... um, experience our work life in an equitable way? How do we um, build a culture that supports moms and, you know, black people in different styles of of operating and sort of leave behind that bro culture and that sort of monochromatic approach to business? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's especially challenging in fields like STEM for women to um, feel welcomed and to stand up to bad behavior because you can't just jump from job to job. It's not like you're a programmer and you can program this or that at any company. The research we do takes years, even decades. And so we don't have the flexibility to leave. And so you try to make it work because you want your research to see the light of day. Um, and I think that that actually cultivates more pockets of bad behavior. Um, and I'm hoping that by bringing this case to the um, to the public sphere and pursuing it legally, maybe we can have more conversations as a community around how we're treating women and what we tolerate, what we allow. I can't believe how many colleagues, friends, friends from grad school, people in the industry have reached out to me in the last couple of weeks saying, me too. It's still very common um, yeah. that pockets occur. And some companies have great DEI initiatives and 
you know, you can have a great manager, but you you end up having these sort of perfect storms of um, bad behavior. And it's really hard. And I could tell you from personal experience, it's really, really hard to speak up and say enough is enough. And we have to do something about this because I knew and I did that I was going to lose everything. And I did. I lost I lost it all. Ten years of my research, the thing that I, you know, thought about 24-7, my passion, it was gone like that in in a moment. Um, and that's still really hard for me to process and think about. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to remind myself I'm doing it for the women that are still there. I'm doing it for women across the field. Um, and to really have that discussion, you know, especially here in Utah, we're always voted, you know, worst, women, worst place for women to work. And I would say talking to friends here in Utah, other women, that's actually it's a very challenging place to be a woman um, and to be employed. So we have some major work to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you bring up that data point of like worst in the nation for women to work. And then just this week we're named best economy, best state economy in the nation. And it does feel like that is the intersection that we're standing at. (laughs) Yeah. You have to ask yourself, how's that possible? We're excluding a major part of the workforce, the female contingency. Mm -hmm. Um, how can we have such a strong economy? How does, how do, how do we realign that in our heads? How does it make sense? You know, especially during COVID, a lot of working moms had to stop working because they had to have childcare. We don't have equal pay laws. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult place to work as a woman. And, you know, there's, there's the Utah side of things and then there's the STEM side of things. It's definitely a challenging environment, especially as I've climbed the ranks in leadership. Um, and I find myself more and more alone um, standing around a table of people that don't look anything like me. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what you think, because, I mean, we know that sexism is everywhere. We know that racism is everywhere. But we do hear these stories increasingly from the STEM field. Mm-hmm. Is there something unique about the work itself or the field that that makes it so much harder to break through or to break into? Or is it just about the the population of people in power? Academia actually has some, um, has a bad reputation for some bad behavior. You know, you'll hear horror stories of people in their postdocs who had a baby and then, you know, got pushed out or um, is treated really poorly for being female. So because most of us scientists go through academia for our training, you know, maybe a master's or a PhD, we sort of have learned about that culture. And in some ways we've learned to tolerate that culture because a tenured professor is not going anywhere. Um, you know, I think once you're out in industry, there are more checks and balances, especially at larger companies, but the behavior still propagates. And and because a lot of this work is a labor of love, it's a labor of passion. You know, you think about it when you're drinking your coffee in the morning, when you're taking a shower, when you're dropping your kids off at school, it's it's this problem-solving obsession. It's why we get a PhD. You know, we're really, really into our science. Um, it takes an extraordinary event to force you to say enough is enough and and put your foot down and walk away. Um, and I still really struggle with that. I don't I don't regret raising my hand because it was tearing me up as much as the other f- folks at the company. Um, but from a mental health perspective, I've really struggled with the trauma of you know, trying to raise my hand, doing what I thought was right, following the right avenues of, of discussion and and then, you know, being told it would be fixed and thank you for, you know, bringing up these issues and then everything just spun around on its head and I felt like everything was falling through my fingers like sand. It was really traumatic um, experience. It was a lot of gaslighting. And so um, I am living right now 
a difficult experience and I understand why people don't do it, but I want to encourage people um, and say that now that I'm on the other side of that, you know, I am much happier and healthier. And and as it turns out, um, there are many groups who do want to work with me and appreciate me. And, and that's been a wonderful thing to see. It's just when you're in the thick of it, it can be really hard to have that perspective. What does change look like? Like what does actual real change in these working environments look like? What kind of steps do we need to take? It's such a great question because a lot of times the people in power are the ones that don't want to make the change, right? They they want to keep their power. They don't they don't want to take an hour out of their month to to think about diversity. They don't necessarily have the context to want to make changes or they don't see the value in it because um, they want to support people who are like them. Um, in those situations, I think that there are really only two levers we can pull, maybe three. The first lever is from investors, right? So all these small companies, they have to raise money. If investors put their foot down and say they want to see diversity on the board, they want to understand how a company is approaching DEI, at least it stokes a conversation, right? It, it says that this is important. Um, I think the second is that it needs to come from a groundswell from the bottom. So I, I think it's really important that trainees in universities or in early in their career are exposed to concepts of DEI and you know examples of how it goes wrong. You know that's why I'm doing this. I want to I want to provide a real life example of what happens when um, we treat certain sections of our company really poorly and and how bad this can be for the science. That's why we're here. Right. So having a groundswell from the bottom, I think, is important and accountability internally where, you know, you don't keep laughing at that joke or, um, you know, you, you you raise your hand and say this is not OK or, um, you know, you you request as a younger person, you know, I want to understand how we're thinking about DE and I, I want to I want us to have this conversation or I've noticed that this person's not being treated well. Um, so I, I think it needs to come from the top. I, I think it needs to come from the bottom. I want to say, you know, maybe there's some some laws we can put in place. I just don't know if that's really going to change things. Um, but I would I would love always to see more um, more persuasive laws in place uh, to to dissuade basically this kind of behavior and have there be penalties associated with it. Because um, because they a lot of people in business think with their wallets, right? So we have to think about. <laughs> How do, how do we get to their wallets to make them care about something they might not care about? Right. Well, and on that note, it's like, I don't know, maybe this feels like, maybe this makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist, but like, I do, I do wonder, it seems like a lot of these entrepreneurial young tech companies, they are building to sell. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily building to sustain, to build a, like a sustainable work culture, a sustainable company. It's like build something that we can sell. Yeah. Be cut through Sell it. Yeah. <laughs> right. If that's part of the problem is that it's just like, that's not an upfront investment work culture. It's just build the thing to offload it. That is a, a an absolutely valid business model that I've seen a lot of groups take. I just think that you can't table culture. You know, it, even if you try to build it lean and mean and, and sell it off, you still have human beings that are working at your company, you know? And yeah. If you have a segment of those people feeling uncomfortable or scared to come to the office or threatened or gaslit, they're not going to be productive, plain and simple. You know, so if if you're a good leader, you want to make sure you're enabling your employees to be the best employee they can be. Um, and, you know, at least being even just able to self-reflect, are we doing a good job? You know, we brought to the table some very 
real and and written down and witnessed examples of sexual harassment and gender discrimination. And there wasn't even a discussion around, you know, maybe this is bad. You know, it was right out of the gate after the first discussion. It was defensive, defensive. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, we didn't touch anyone. You know, there wasn't even a willingness to think about how this might be impacting their employees. And we need to be able to have those conversations. Yeah, we didn't touch anyone is a pretty low bar. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, gosh. When I read that, I was just like, this is <gasps> this is so unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like, we've got classrooms across this country full of young women who are engaged in these, you know, women in STEM programs. Mm-hmm. Girls who code, black girls who code. Like, what do you, what is it going to be like for that generation? Are you optimistic? You know what? I actually am optimistic. I think that um, the younger generation, like even men my age and younger, they look at this story and they're horrified. A lot of people reached out in solidarity over the last few weeks saying, you know, thank you for coming out to sharing your story. This is unacceptable. So I do think that there is a shift in um, the population where this kind of behavior is no longer tolerable. Um, the question is, what do we do with those segments, the small fraction of people where the behavior is still really bad? Um, because they're because they're in power, you know, it's very, very destructive, um, especially for working moms. I think that's a segment of me, too, that um, we don't talk about quite as much. And that's what that's what seemed to resonate a lot with people who reached out to me. Feeling unsupported when you're pregnant or a young mom is a really common experience in STEM today. Um, but but we're talking about it, right? We're having these conversations. Um, I don't think these conversations were happening 10, 15 years ago. And I'm hopeful that however hard and, you know, embarrassing and scary and difficult this has been for me, you know, I want to say that at least we're having the conversation. And, and uh, the reason I keep doing this and I'm willing to talk about it is I hope it'll it'll promote conversations and enact change for that next generation because this is a waste of energy. You know, it's like, we're here to do good science. Let's get back to curing back pain and curing diabetes and curing cancer. That's that's what we're here for. This is kind of a distraction, an unnecessary distraction. It's the journey that we need to go on as a STEM society. Um, and I do think that it's moving in the right direction. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean... You know, this is a show about Salt Lake City, and I hate hearing that you moved to our city and that this was your experience. I do hope that you've found support from this community because, I mean, you know, it's intolerable. Yeah, Salt Lake is, you know, it's grown so much in the last 10 years. Um, BioHive has grown a lot. There's a women's event coming up later this month that I'm really excited to attend. So I think that the community is growing, and as it grows, you know, we'll, we need to find more ways to support women and that's something I'm really interested in figuring out how to do. Salt Lake is a beautiful place to live, and there's actually a lot of great scientific talent here out of the universities. We never had trouble hiring in Salt Lake City, and there's a lot of room to build manufacturing facilities. I mean, it's actually a great hub for stem cell science. Yeah. Um, but there is a lack of support for women, especially working mothers, and that's something that we need to grapple with if we want to continue to build the local economy successfully. Yeah, absolutely. Lara, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for chatting today. I really appreciate it.
A little news before we go. In some good workplace news, employees at the Starbucks in Cottonwood Heights officially won a union with an 11 to 6 vote. Employees can now pursue contract negotiations with Starbucks corporate at the bargaining table. This is Utah's first Starbucks union, though a second store at 4th and 4th in Salt Lake has already filed for its own vote. Also, an update for you on the local push for measures to end gun violence. On Saturday, the student-led organization March for Our Lives marched from West High School to the Capitol building, demanding political action to end mass shootings and gun violence in Utah and the United States. Are leaders listening? Well, some of them. Salt Lake City hosted a gun buyback program on Saturday morning, and we don't know the final numbers yet, but Chief Mike Brown tweeted that it was a success. Senator Mitt Romney has joined 10 other Republican senators in drafting a framework legislation that would call for some moderate reforms. For example, resources for states to implement red flag laws, an investment in mental health treatment and school security, and an added level of scrutiny for gun buyers under the age of 21. A red flag law is a law allowing police or family members, coworkers, to petition a state court to order the temporary removal of firearms from a person who they believe may present a danger to others or to themselves. Historically, efforts to pass red flag laws in the Utah legislature have not been successful. But historically, the legislature has also found an influx of federal money kind of hard to resist. So it could change the game if a federal bill passes. Senator Mike Lee? Well, he was not one of the senators in support of this measure. Lee most recently blamed mass shootings in America on fatherlessness in households. That's right. The old blame single moms. Very 1992 Dan Quayle energy. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around this city. Bye.